Joining us once again to continue our fascinating talk about the Indian subcontinent is Professor Sherrod Malalu from Cal State University, Sacramento, where he is. Emeritus Professor of Sociology has taught for 34 years at CSUS. He obtained his Ph.D. at Ohio State University and a master's degree at Brigham Young University. He uh, came to the United States in 1946, having left India when it was still a British colony. Dr. Malalu, Michael Hart, in his book, The 100 Most Influential Persons in History, did not include Mohandas Gandhi among his top 100. He didn't want to include him because he thought that forces were such that India was headed for an end to colonialism anyway, and he he wasn't sure in his own mind that it was Gandhi that made all the difference. Would you agree with that? Well, I wouldn't say he made all the difference, because I think Western culture had some influence there too, because the leaders of independence were trained in the West, and they were influenced by Western ideas as to what to do in a country as far as politics is concerned, and the political structure of life, the idea of democracy. These were westernized Indians who were leaders of the national movement. Yeah. But they couldn't connect with the Indian population because there was a big gap sure. between their ideas, which applied in the West, not to India. They couldn't connect with the Indian masses. Along came Mahatma Gandhi, who was a real man of the masses. Yeah. And he made, allowed the Indian masses to be connected to the political movement. And it's in that sense that he became the leader of Indian independence. Now, it may have happened anyway in time, but the point is he had a tremendous influence on people, yeah. a tremendously calming. Look at the chaos you find in other societies, sure. except those that are totalitarian. Even there you have the chaos, of course, which is in China's for history, for example, is bloody. Yeah. In fact, the kind of tragedies, human tragedies, mass tragedies that went on in China, I mean, there's no comparison to what the jihadis do, do, are doing, the Muslim jihadis are doing in the world today. And yet, of course, this is what the uh, Western world is preoccupied with rather than what happened in China. China is powerful. Nobody wants to get <laughs> China upset. And so the same thing with Mahatma Gandhi, you see. It's hard to answer the question in a simple way, whether you agree with him or not. I think he was a great influence, not only on, on India and on independence, but on the rest of the world. Martin Luther King, for example, yeah, I don't think he can be dismissed. Sure. And personally, I think, of course, he was probably the greatest figure of the uh, century, of his century. The direction in which we need to go yeah. to create a better world is the one, I think, that he's proposing. And the kind of values that uh, talk about ordinary life and how you get along with your fellow human beings and how you treat your enemies. In fact, he used nonviolence, it's not as a weapon, as a way of life. Now, there are some people who talk about Gandhi as a strategist. He was very clever, they said, to use this. But for him, it was a way of life. We have people trying to use nonviolence in the Western world, but who don't believe in it. Yeah. They simply use it as a way of achieving their goals, sure. which are nonviolent. Whereas Mahatma Gandhi argued that you can't separate means and ends. The means dictate the ends. And as somebody else said, if you want to, if you bring the devil in on your side to help you, then he's going to have a say at the end. So it's similar to the to the notion that the means are related to the ends. Now, as a young man, I understand you actually had a chance to meet Gandhi. I wouldn't say meet, but there were, I did see him on two occasions. Okay. Once was at, at a political rally in uh, Chopati Beach in Bombay, uh, where many such gatherings are held, even including religious festivals and so on. 
It was a huge mass of people. They, they occupied the entire beach. Some people were carrying him on a, on a chair high up there where he could be seen. He was a small figure. But it's amazing the influence he had on that whole crowd. And uh, all they could say was, you know, the, the, the shouts in praise of Mahatma Gandhi. But the other was a more personal type of contact. Uh, probably in the 30s, late 30s, one of the practices of Mahatma Gandhi, uh, wherever he went in India, whenever he traveled, and also at home, of course, where he used to live, was to hold prayer meetings in the evening. Mm -hmm. And so the Christian community in, um, in Bombay decided to uh, ask him if we could attend one of his prayer meetings mm -hmm. and have this prayer ceremony with him. And so um, this uh, gathering took place at the beach in Juhu, uh, just outside Bombay. There was a gathering of Christians uh, from uh, the Bombay area. Mm -hmm. They all met to uh, meet Mahatma Gandhi, and they sang Christian hymns. His favorite hymn was A Lead Kindly Light, and so they sang that. Uh -huh. And it was one of the few uh, religious occasions at that time which, that brought together different religious groups for a service. Protestants and Catholics, mm -hmm. first time they were really brought together in a religious <laughs> way for to have a common ceremony. Yeah. And again, with a man who was not a Christian. Right. Technically. And so there, after the, after the, uh, of course, there was a hush, you know, when we, yeah. no, there was, you couldn't hear a sound as he sat there because he had a very quiet voice and he spoke gently and so on. And then after the uh, meeting, we all filed past him. And so all of us in single file walked by and we were right sort of face to face with him and we greeted mm -hmm. him and mm -hmm. went on. So he had a chance to, chance to see him. But it's amazing, you know, uh, if you were to put him in the Western world somewhere, people wouldn't even look at him. Little, They'd probably trample him. <laughs> five foot tall, little, little man with wearing yes. robes. Uh, well, he was a little taller than that, but uh, <laughs> physically he doesn't look uh, yeah. charismatic. Right. And yet he was. Yes. In, a, in the real sense, not in the sense of a movie star, charisma yeah. and so on. You know, There was something about him. I, I find that quite remarkable. He was famous for being able to go into Hindu areas, and, and yet, I mean, excuse me, to go into Muslim areas, and yet the Muslims them also revered him. It wasn't a Hindu thing. The Muslims revered him as a truly holy man. Yes, yes. Here, here, here Christians of, of all sides put aside their differences in recognition of, of this character. Yes, but they knew him. Yeah. See, they knew him, that's why. That's what gave him his charisma. They knew his life. They knew what he stood for. And that immediately quieted everybody because he was genuine, except, of course, the fanatic who eventually shot him. I guess we should point out that sadly, and perhaps fortunately for India, I mean, he was assassinated. He was assassinated by, by right-wing fanatics who were, who were Hindu. I say fortunate for India because had it been a Muslim who had, who had assassinated uh, Gandhi, it probably would have, well, would have caused massive, massive bloodshed. While he was dying... He raised his hands like this and forgave the assassin. He even thought of it at that moment, you know, while while he was bleeding, suggesting that it was really he was genuine. It was part yeah, of his life. Sure. That uh, that's who he was, not some phony. Although uh, Churchill called him a half-naked faker. Yeah, <laughs> right. I, I on, on my visit to India, I, I remember seeing the the actual spot where where he'd taken his last steps in New Delhi. Yeah. Yeah. Painted out where his the path that he took. It was it was very very moving. Yeah, and of course even when you go to where he uh, his remains are supposed to be, there uh, there's a little monument there in uh, New Delhi. You get a feeling of quiet. You know, it's amazing. It, it just happens. Sure. 
are you optimistic about uh, about things coming out okay in, in, in an area that people are seem to be worried a great deal about? Oh, yes. Uh, you tend not to be quite as jittery as you are in the West. For example, <laughs> this, this thing that happened, uh, this World Trade Center. Sure. Now, certainly it was tragic, of course. But that's what the rest of the world is experiencing frequently, that sure. kind of tragedy. Sure. And we have to live with it. But it was a shock in this country because it's unheard of, unthinkable. It was unthinkable for American society. And that's why it, was, it, it meant so much. But it, uh, in a sense, the rest of the world says, come and join us now. You're one of us, really. Yeah. That's what makes you one of us, except it didn't, unfortunately now. It provided a further separation under the, new, under the present government, of course. That's cut, it, cut itself off from the rest of the world. What would you like to see happen in terms of U.S. and Indian relations? Is there... At the moment, I don't see any prospects for a good relationship. It's hard to say because you have uh, Pakistan in the middle. Sure. And the U.S. is playing ball with Pakistan. And as long as that connection is there, India's uh, concerns about Pakistan are not going to be dealt with at all. So uh, there's no hope in the immediate future for that unless the U.S. interest emerges, which requires that Pakistan put a halt to some of its activities, which are then hurting the West such as the emergence of the right wing now in Pakistan, yeah. in support, in fact, of the uh, Taliban. Um, in America, um, we think of, of, of colonialism as something that goes back to the time of George Washington, which it does. And yet you grew up in, a, in, in the British colony of India and, and were part of, I guess, the Indian Army. I guess you were, you, you were the boxing champion in the Indian Army, I understand. No, no, no. no. You, I boxed. You boxed. <laughs> What was that like being in in uh, in, in the army of, of a colonial power? Like Terrible. That? <laughs> Terrible. In fact, uh, in a sense, I suppose indirectly, that's uh, why I resigned my commission, because I was the only Indian officer in a unit made up of British officers who had privates who were Indians. And so the attitudes of the British officers towards these Indian, ordinary Indians right. was... Uh, Appalling! I couldn't stand it because I had identified with the Indian soldiers. Yeah. Did you, did you feel they were part of a part of a, a team? It was not. It was not a team. It was no, pretty no, much no. there was there no, was there was no. us and them. Yes, especially because they kept talking about Indian society as well during mm -hmm. the war, and mm -hmm. uh, uh, they'd be in contact with villagers, you know, wherever they were stationed, and they'd uh, say all sorts of demeaning things mm -hmm. about Indians, and I would have to listen to them. The officers' mess, and I didn't care to, so I started. Uh, eating with the subordinate officer in my own tent and so on. And, um, of course, that didn't sit very well. So it, it wasn't very pleasant. Although many uh, Indians did serve, and they did very well. And have General Kariyapa, our first uh, commander-in-chief in India, under in independence, was a British officer in the Indian Army. In America, the word colonialism, I don't think, means very much to most people. And, and yet... Uh, reading on the history of it, it seems clear that it started out, what started out as a, uh, a trade effort in India with the British, they soon found themselves being embroiled in local political skirmishes, and of course political skirmishes led to more political power and more political alliances, and pretty soon mm. it became, you know, a, a, it was supposed to be about trade, not territory. That was the original idea, I guess, when Queen Elizabeth granted a trading concession to British ships to go to to India, but it soon, of course, as a natural evolution of things, became much more than that. Well, the business interests had to be protected. 
and the need to protect kept on increasing. And gradually, of course, the power, they called for the British official government to come in and help them to protect their interests. So the troops came in, and of course, gradually then other interests developed, and uh, it grew into the political control of India. Did you see parallels? I mean, I, in reading this, it sort of struck me the parallels between modern globalization efforts and what are the old system of colonialism. It's a new. I think it's a new kind of colonialism, Western colonialism, really, uh, and not really Western because I think Europe, Europeans, European countries are much more concerned about the life and the culture of non-Western peoples than the, is the United States. And the United States' primary interest seems to be business and the profit. And, of course, that seems to be dominating what's happening uh, in the so-called non-Western world. And the U.S., of course, is the dominant power, unchallenged economically and politically. And even the Europeans can't do too much about that. They have difficulty standing up because they have their private in right in Iraq. You see that. Yeah. They have so many interests of their own that they want to protect their, those interests, especially the oil interests. Right. And so they're sort of playing ball with the United States. But it is a kind of uh, economic imperialism. The cultural imperialism has been going on in, in any case. We pointed out on this show, I think, some time ago that India, with one-third the area of the United States, has more people than the Western Hemisphere, which puts it in perspective. I think the solution, so-called developing countries, is to say what they said in, in Cancun recently, you know, the World Trade Organization trying to dominate things. Right. The other nations are saying, no, look, it's fine for you. You're setting the terms which will favor you as far as the world community is concerned. Yes. But what about our interests? Our interests are important. Yeah. And so it's trying to make a stand, but it's very hard. Because you have this other seductive influence of Western culture, the, the crassest parts of Western culture, you know, the, the grossest, and Coca-Cola and so on. So that culture is spreading. The middle class uh, has about, what, 300 million people, they say. That's an outside estimate. It's a lot of and people. you don't know who you include yeah. because it includes quite a wide range. A chap selling uh, uh, in a, from a little stall on the streets in Bombay may be considered middle class because he... Uh, is educated, and uh, he has a little business, and there's a big gap between him and the villagers. Most of India is made up of the villagers, 70%. Right. Yeah. And so uh, when you say middle class, it doesn't really make any kind of sense, because yeah. they would really be a lower class in the uh, cities, in the uh, any, any other urban setting. Yeah. But in relation to the villagers, of course, they're all lumped together as middle class. Yeah. So you have people like, uh, let's see, high court judge, uh, as well as uh, maybe uh, this little shopkeeper who may have a stall in the street yeah. selling his goods, all include Your lumped class. together in this. But they're all consumers. Right. They're all part of this consumer culture that is consuming our societies, the, not only in the non-Western world, but in the Western world as well. And that's why you have the right wing in this country, which is trying to, uh, that's its tr strength really, is talking about values. Right. We do not agree with the values, but they're saying there are values to be adhered to. Sure. Let's not be simply carried along by all these other influences. But, of course, they themselves don't believe it. Yeah. Because they get carried along. Exactly. But politically, it's very strong. Yeah. Politically, it's strong. It sounds good. 
Dr. Sherrod Malala, thank you very much for coming on and talking to us on the show. Thank you. We want to thank uh, once again Dr. Malalu for coming on and joining together UC Davis and Cal State University Sacramento, two excellent local institutions that, uh, you know, by God, ought to collaborate more frequently, I think. So, uh, you know, we'll have, we'll have more of that in the future, I hope. I am Douglas Everett. You are listening to Radio Parallax, and this is KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento. <laughs> 